Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. We are a Reformed Southern Baptist Church. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University, teaching Old and New Testament, systematic theology, and church history. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. Today's podcast is entitled Problems with Provisionism. A few weeks ago on Facebook, I was interacting um, on some threads, and I can't even remember how this all happened, but I think somebody suggested that myself and Tyler Vela get together and do a podcast responding to um, Soteriology 101 and the Provisionism Theology. And so as I thought about that, I thought, well, it would be interesting to add Chris Date into the mix, since he recently debated Leighton Flowers on the Unbelievable broadcast. And so the three of us got together and said, let's get together and do a podcast, the three of us, a reformed triumvirate to address what we consider are the problems with provisionism. And so we recorded a podcast. And so I'm happy to present this to you on the Understanding Christianity podcast. So uh, without any further ado, uh, here are the three of us, myself, Tyler Vela, and Chris Date discussing the problems with provisionism. Well, I am Sean Cole, and I host Understanding Christianity, and I have invited two friends to come on to discuss what has been called provisionism or SBC traditionalism or synergism, whatever title we want to use. And so I've invited uh, Tyler Vela and Chris Date, and we're going to have a fun discussion. And so maybe each of you can introduce yourselves and your podcast and who you are and why you're doing this with me today. So Chris, why don't you go first? Okay. Uh, my name is Chris Date, and um, several years ago, I was host of a podcast called The Apologetics, which was a combination of the words theology and apologetics sort of mashed together. And um, on that podcast, I interviewed guests, and I hosted debates and participated in debates and stuff like that. Um, but what I'm more known for now is my um, role in the ministry Rethinking Hell, um, which is a ministry neither of you are on the same page with in terms of Doctrine of Hell. So uh, don't just to let listeners know, you two are, you know, disagree with me on that topic. But anyway, that's that's what I'm known for. And, um, uh, you know, if people want to check out that ministry, they can go to RethinkingHell.com. And if they're interested in a conference that we have coming up in a couple of months, uh, our sixth annual conference, they can go to RethinkingHellConference.com. Um, but that's not that's neither here nor there, so I won't say any more about that. Uh, as for how I um, or why I'm here joining you and Tyler uh, to discuss this topic. I have sort of um, uh, crossed proverbial swords with Leighton, whom I consider a friend, uh, in a couple of places. One is on his podcast. Another venue was another person's podcast. And then most recently, a few weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, um, Leighton and I debated the topic of meticulous divine providence on the unbelievable radio show hosted by Justin Brierley. Um and so having sparred with him a few times, um, I've got uh, one sort of area of concern and some examples of it that we'll talk about that are uh, specific to – there are things that Leighton has specifically said in his various argumentation, um, but it's not – but they're, for the most part, not specific to Leighton. They're, they're either practically this, exactly what other provisionists or Arminians or traditionalists or whatever you'd like to call them have, have likewise argued, or at the very least, the concept 
uh, represented by his arguments has been argued by other people of his persuasion as well. So uh, that's my interest in the topic is to talk about um, how the issues we're going to discuss today have sort of played out in my um, sparring matches, as it were, with Leighton. But I want to make clear that um, I love Leighton and I consider him a friend and um, – you know, I hope that when I hope that he will listen to my critique in the spirit in which it's intended, and and I'm sure he'll do so. So, yeah. and let me just say a few things real quickly too, because we've mentioned Leighton Flowers. This is not a direct attack against Leighton Flowers. I've interacted with Leighton since 2015. We've had very cordial interactions. I consider him a brother in Christ. I think he's um, prolific in what he does to address the issue and. Um, and so, um, Leighton, I know you're going to listen to this, and so we harbor no ill will towards you personally. Uh, we hope to interact with your exegetical conclusions, and um, since you and I are in the same tribe of Southern Baptist, I felt like it would be good for me to host this. And we also don't want you to feel like we're ganging up on you with three-on-one. Um, it's just that um, Tyler and I and Chris and I have interacted over the past few years on separate occasions uh, discussing these issues, and we thought it would just be fun to get together and uh, just address this. And so maybe you could bring Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett and other guys on to, to join your podcast podcast so that it's you know you can you can get your guys on your team as well so Leighton we do this in love and uh, we hope you receive it that way so Tyler tell us a little bit about yourself uh thanks for having me on I am the host of the freed thinker podcast and blog which um, started out originally dealing with apologetics specifically towards new atheism and naturalism and materialism and all that kind of fun stuff which was my life prior to Christianity um, it's slowly morphed into just kind of a labor of love and any topic that I enjoy as part of my, my studies, um, through my master's program in biblical studies. So some biblical theology, biblical studies, historical theology, systematic theology, all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, and as a reformed Presbyterian, uh, obviously gets into matters dealing with soteriology, um, and have <clears throat> as the one, one of the three of us that has, interact with Leighton has, has probably had the most fireworks. Um, uh, I, I actually, I, I do echo your sentiments. Leighton and I have, have actually exchanged emails recently. I apologized for some, some ways that I had been, uh, uncharitable to him in our, in our dialogues, even though I still fervently disagree and none of my convictions about the positions have changed. Um, I, I, I do, I, I did apologize for some of the ways that I, I had personally interacted with him, uh, in, in some of those manners. And so, um, really hoping to continue that through here and, and really just focusing on, um, the arguments, the, the concepts, the criticisms, and, and even as I told you guys, I mean, um, some of, some of the issues here are dealing with how provisionist arguments and exegesis, um, uh, work themselves out. And really it's just, Leighton is just kind of an exemplar. He's just the forefront. And so he has the most written on it. So for the most examples, but it's not really about him in any way whatsoever. Right. Um, so I, I, you know, I think I, I'm looking forward to, to hearing some of your thoughts on some of the things that, that I've been thinking about as well. Cause I have some, I have some serious concerns about it um and and i think it'll be you know sean i think it'll be a nice break from uh all of the sb sbc people who are you know currently all just thinking about critical race theory right now so <laughs> and, let's and, just and give it, them a break to think about it, something it, else at intersectionality and complementarianism. Yeah. well speaking of that i am a reformed southern baptist and tyler you're a reformed presbyterian chris do you have a do you have an affiliation or how would you how would you categorize your theology or your tribe <laughs> 
Well, speaking of intersectionality, I self-identify. Uh, <laughs> I, I self-identify as Reformed Baptist. I, I would okay. not. Uh, I don't have an affiliation with any particular Reformed uh, denomination, Southern Baptist or otherwise. Uh, but but I most closely align with the ethos of the Reformed Baptists. Okay. Cool. All right. So we got two Reformed Baptists and one Reformed Presbyterian. So we can disagree on mode of baptism, but we can agree <laughs> agree on some soteriology things. So here's the format. What we're going to do, we've kind of discussed three of the top issues or top problems or top exegetical um, topics that we think are problematic with the provisionist slash traditionalist theology. And each of us are going to kind of address those initially, and then we're going to kind of banter, and it's just going to kind of be fun. We haven't really done a lot of pre-planning, so this is going to kind of be pretty fluid, and I'm, I'm look, kind of looking forward to that. So we're actually going to start the topic off with Chris, and so Chris is going to introduce his topic, and then we're going to go from there and have a good discussion. So Chris, go for it. Okay, cool. So um, the, the critique that I want to um, offer has to do with, uh, it, it's a critique that has sometimes um, been joked about by Leighton and others. Uh, I think I've even seen it as, as the, the um, topping or wording of memes. Uh, and that is that from my perspective, Leighton and others, they flatten out uh, the transcendent and imminent, reducing them to a single imminent phenomenon. Um, and I'm going to offer three examples, uh, one at a time, and we'll discuss each of them. All of them taken from my recent debate with Leighton on Unbelievable. Uh, at least I think the first two are, the third one may Maybe not, but he has said it on numerous other occasions, even if he didn't in that recent debate. So the first example, um, early on in my recent debate on Unbelievable with Leighton, he gave an he offered an analogy to uh, our Calvinistic understanding of um, foreordination, uh, in which God is compared to a software engineer, a developer, a software a programmer, who programs a virtual world whose inhabitants therefore do exactly what it is that they're programmed to do. Now, notice this attempts to compare living, sentient, conscious, decision-making, morally responsible human beings to mindless mechanistic automatons. But in our view, human beings aren't mindless automatons mechanistically carrying out behavior defined by code or by, uh, you know, we're, we're not biological machines merely responding mechanistically to external stimuli. We believe humans are, as I said, living, sentient, conscious, decision-making moral agents who are doing what God has foreordained them to do, yes, but who nevertheless are weighing options genuinely based on varying combinations of logic, personal desires, competing needs, and so forth are making a genuine choice that seems best or otherwise most desirable to them. And so Leighton's analogy and argument then, this one from the software engineer or whatever, it seems to me that it flattens out the transcendent foreordination of God on the one hand and the imminent decision-making of moral agents on the other hand, reducing them both to a single imminent phenomenon. So that's my first example of this. What do you guys think of uh, what I've said? Tyler, go for it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. I think um, one of the the major issues that I have when dealing with provisionists, Arminians, lots actually lots of non-Calvinists, is is exactly what you're we're pointing out. Not only is there an issue dealing with uh, kind of a disanalogous analogy or thought experiment, um, but there's there's this notion that. Um, if if something is is determined, that because on their view determination determinism means no freedom, that therefore that is that must be what our position is. Mm. Um, and so when when they're dealing when they're saying oh well Calvinists affirm this therefore you know why why pray, 
Mm -hmm. Right. Um, if if you've just been determined, why pray? Why even debate? I've been I've been pre I've been predestined to be a non-Calvinist. So so why even try to reason with me? Those are examples of of that flattening out that you're getting to because they they they're confusing what they think is a logical entailment of our view with our view itself. Mm. And so they just they equivocate between those two things. Mm. Um, and I think it's really important for us to come back and say, well. First of all, you, you need to demonstrate that that any kind of determinism logically entails the the lack of any kind of substantive freedom, right? So we might deny libertarian freedom, but it's a really common misunderstanding that Calvinism denies all freedom of the will, um, which just isn't isn't true. We we believe that that we have. Um, we have a, a creaturely freedom of the will. We act in accordance with our natures and our desires and things like that. But we are, we are predestined. We are, we are predetermined. But um, they would need to demonstrate um, how that logically entails right. that kind of that right. that that robot or that programmed right. no no choice whatsoever uh, right. type of thing. And one thing I one thing I've discovered is they don't really define compatibilism accurately. I would define compatibilism as God's meticulous sovereignty being compatible with human responsibility right. or creaturely freedom. What they try to insert is how can determinism be compatible with libertarian free will? That's yeah. not compatibilism. We we flat out deny initially libertarian free will. So we're not trying to make God's sovereign determination compatible with libertarian free will. That's That's to misdefine what compatibilism is. And so I think sometimes when we don't clearly articulate what compatibilism is, then both sides tend to argue with an assumption. I think the one thing that they come with, they come with the assumption that libertarian free will must be true. It has to be true. It's it's um, assumed to be true, but they never actually demonstrate that it is true, whereas I think you can demonstrate compatibilism is biblical. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. And and I think you know, we don't we don't go on the, the authority of experts or anything like that, but I think if you if you just point them to the fact that it's it's something like I want to say sixty percent of philosophers um, all all hold to a compatibilist notion. And it's the, the it's about twelve to fourteen percent um, affirm either a hard determinism or a liber libertarianism. Again, that doesn't mean that their view is false and our view is true, but it just means that your your view is in such a minority that you you can't just assume that that it's prima facie true. Mm, you yeah. you need you need to actually defend that position. Mm. Um, and there's and there's somewhat of an irony when they when they assume that it's true and then they engage with with a compatibilist, and they basically treat us as if compatibilism, because we affirm determinism, are affirming a hard determinism, mm. and they don't—they don't make any conceptual distinctions between the two, um, and so they—they they collapse those concepts together as one, and then and then move forward from there. Just out, just out of curiosity, Tyler, when you speak of philosophers as a group uh, and you break down the percentages who hold to libertarian freedom on the one hand, mm -hmm. hard determinism on the other, and then a large compatibilist contingent, are you talking about philosopher, philosophers en masse or are you talking about Christian philosophers? Philosophers en masse. Okay, so um, it was a, you, there, there was a Phil paper survey that went out to about a thousand uh, academic, like professional philosophers in academia, and that was about the breakdown. Uh, do you? I'm just curious. Do you happen to know what the breakdown is among specifically Christian philosophers? I don't. I don't. Okay. I, I would assume that it's it's 
far higher towards the libertarian freedom. Yeah, so would I. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, That's interesting. I, I think I think uh, Alvin Plantinga um, has has held Alvin Plantinga, William Lane Craig are kind of the the <laughs> the leading brights that everyone uh, and I don't I don't mean that in a in a you know a pun on the atheistic term, but I, I think they're the leading thinkers in Christian philosophy. That a lot of other Christian philosophers get their um, kind of get their I don't want to say marching orders, but they follow the lead from and and they you know they publish the most and so they they follow that type of thing. The free will the free will defense is very enticing. Molinism is very enticing, mm. um, mm. And, and it solves or apparently solves some problems of you know problems of evil and things like that. Well, Chris, I, I want you to get back to your your topics because sure. I, I did listen to your unbelievable debate and I th- and I did read your book by the way. Thank and you. I think and I think you guys did some really good argumentation. Well, well, you did some very good argumentation <laughs> for um, for those texts, and so I mean we can talk philosophy, which is helpful. But I think sometimes for our listeners, if we can stick with, it's fun to talk that. But I mean, let's let's sure. maybe talk some text or talk some. You said you had some other examples. What are some of those other examples that you had, maybe that you were going to share? Right. So the so the second example will both turn our attention a little bit more toward the text, uh, but also introduce a sort of um, side subject, a related subject that we can discuss as well. And that has to do with the different meanings of God's will. So in yep. that in that debate on unbelievable, Leighton um, made a passing comment that uh, to the effect of the Lord's Prayer, in right. which in which Jesus says, "Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." Um, he he thinks it doesn't make any sense in our view because God's will is already being perfectly done. But here again, I think uh, Leighton is equivocating on the meaning of the word will, and and with the utmost of respect for Leighton, I don't think he has much of an excuse here, because he knows that we distinguish between the transcendent, secret, or decretive will of God on the one hand, and right. the imminent, prescriptive, or revealed will of God on the other hand. And so he knows that we think the Lord's transcendent, secret will is indeed being carried out at all times, but that his imminent, prescriptive will is not yet being perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, And and what's interesting is that the very fact that the will to which Jesus refers here is being done in heaven but not yet on earth is enough for Leighton to know that we would take that will to be a reference to God's imminent revealed will rather than his um, transcendent secret will. So here again, it seems to me that Leighton's argument flattens out the transcendent secret will of God and his imminent revealed will, reducing them to a single imminent phenomenon. I just recently released a book called um, your identity in the Trinity, discovering God's grace in the gospel. And I do a chapter on the Lord's prayer as one of the means of grace that we grow. And I talk about that issue that historically, according to most of the Protestant confessions, when it talks about your will be done, it's talking about the decreative. Um, I'm sorry. It's talking about the will of command, right. God's revealed will. And it's logically flowing from the fact that God's name is not hallowed in the earth. Um, and so because God's name is not Hallowood and because you want God's kingdom to come through evangelism and missions, you, it, it's logically there that God's will of command is not being done on earth by believers or unbelievers. And so it's a prayer for obedience to the revealed will of God. And I think he looks at that as, you know, basically what you said, um, which is interesting because I think if I listen to Leighton, he doesn't make a distinction between those two types of wills of God. Right. He flat out denies those. So when he comes back to argue that, it's almost like he's taking the position that there are two wills uh, or one secret will that's always being done. 
To, to be fair, I don't think Leighton denies the distinction. I could be wrong, but I think that what he would say is that um, there was, there's never any sort of opposition or any sort of discontinuity between God's revealed and his secret will. Right, that's probably true. Yeah. Tyler? Well, I, I think uh, um, I think you're absolutely right that 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 he while he makes the distinction in some way he doesn't make it the same way that that we would in the reformed protestant tradition um i th i usually think of this in terms of where where he and others will re uh, object to something like irresistible grace and they'll point to passages where people are resisting the the work of the spirit or they're resisting um, <laughs> some type of grace being used. And they'll say, see, someone can resist the grace of God. Right. <clears throat> and we say, okay, that we don't disagree that people can, can act in such a way that, that is resisting or appears to resist or is, is in contradistinction to the revealed will of God. Right. right. It, it's it's the it's the grace that's shown at the moment of regeneration that is irresistible. So all these passages that aren't that, that you know, the, the Pharisees resist Jesus or or in John, when when his believers leave because they can't stand his teaching and they say, see, they're they're resisting. They're resisting Christ. People can resist. We say, well, that that that's not dealing with the same type of that's not dealing with that 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 secret will um the the decreative will that's not dealing with the the same type of the moment of regeneration of grace that we're talking about right um, it's talking about something else um and and that that very clearly happens when we're talking about the will of god i think as well um it it suffers the problem of 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 failing as an internal critique right because an internal critique right. is going to say well, Calvinism is wrong because if Calvinism is true, then it, it runs afoul of these passages. But basically he's saying, well, if Calvinism is true, but we assume our understanding of <laughs> the, the nature of the wills, then Calvinism is true. Well, you, you've set up an invalid internal critique. You've moved from an, invalid, an internal critique to an external critique at the same time. And so it makes the argument fail. Right. Yeah, and I think the one thing that... Um, we really need to press the provisionists on is that they they would acknowledge that God has a will, but they don't understand or they make the argument against us that God, why would God prescribe something in opposition to his secret will? Mm. And they often they often go to like the child children of Molech and in, in Jeremiah. This never entered my mind as if, um, you know, God, God says thou shalt not kill. And yet, um, these people are killing their children in the fire. This is something I would have never have entered my mind. So therefore, God would never prescribe um, something in opposition to killing. Right. And yet you go to Acts you know, 2 and Acts 4, where <laughs> God predestined the actual killing of his son. And, it, you know, so if you look at the God's moral law of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, and yet that's God's prescriptive will, but yet in the predestined plan of God, he ordained the murder of his own son. So he's prescribing something that goes in opposition to his revealed will. Um, I think it's kind of hard to actually um, to make the argument that there aren't two distinct types of will in God. Yeah. And I think one of the things they're trying to do is they're trying to, to rescue God. It, that might be a crass way to put it. That, I don't think they're thinking like there's a problem. We need to rescue God. But in a way, they're trying to get God off the hook for appearing like he's the quote unquote author of evil, whatever that term even means when they say it. But 
I always wonder, and, and not to plug my own show, but I have a, an episode dealing with Molinism um, called The Metaphysics of Molinism. And one of the problems with that is that it, the, the, the example that I give is, you know, imagine a child who's been abused and, and molested and killed or something like that. And they say, oh, well, well, God would never decree that, right? And I, and I look at it and I say, okay, well, from the other side, on your view, God doesn't want that to happen and he could have stopped it, right? Mm -hmm. But the free will of the per of the perpetrator was was. Do you really think the free will of the perpetrator is of such a value in and yeah. of itself that that's a morally sufficient reason to keep God from stopping the abuse of the child? Like it 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 feel it feels like that then just becomes like the freedom is of such a good that the evil just becomes gratuitous. It's like an unnecessary, it's like a necessary outworking that God didn't really want to happen, but he has to let it happen for this other thing. It, it's much more comforting to me to say, okay, I might not know why God allows this, but in the eternal plan, God has decreed this thing to happen and it will end in the good of those who love him. And indeed, that's how I opened my very uh, Two Views debate book, is, is with yeah. exactly that point. Um, right. uh, what, what I do want to say is I know that um, – uh, well, well, so two things I really wanted to quick, quickly piggyback on that with. One, the Bible is replete with examples in which God interferes and stops people from, people from doing what they would have otherwise chosen to do. So, so even on their own accounting, God can stop people from doing what they would have otherwise wanted to do without violating their libertarian free will. So so that that whole argument seems to me to be uh, uh, invalid. But yeah. but what I also want to point out um, is that you know people like Leighton, Arminians, and and provisionists and so forth they they really get upset when we Calvinists say that the the consistent denial of compatibilism or of Calvinism or of meticulous providence the the the, the consistent um, outworking of that is open theism and they hate when we say that but in reality that is the only way to escape the problem right if if the reason for denying compatibilism and for affirming libertarian free will is to get God off the hook the only way uh, to get God off the hook is to say he simply did not know uh, what was going to happen um, and so I would just encourage, I hate to say it, but I would encourage, I suppose, uh, people to try to be consistent with um, uh, with their reasons for denying compatibilism and sort of trying to keep one foot on both sides of the fence. Well, and to make that to make that objection even stronger, because that that that's a point that I make as well. To make it even stronger, though, and a little more pointed, is not only would God not not need to know what happens in the future, he would have to refrain from acting because of that. So. So again, he he's he he might not know what's going to happen in the future, but he knows what's happening in the moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, he 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 could easily stop the abuse of that child in the moment from happening. But now you're stuck with saying, okay, well, for him to permit it, it's because there might be something that good so that you know that comes from it in the future. So now God is is almost playing dice in allowing something to happen that's bad mm -hmm. because maybe it will work out, but. But if you back it up in order to get out of this, they okay, well, God has morally sufficient reasons for allowing it. Okay, but if God can – to escape open theism, if God can have morally um, sufficient reasons for permitting something, why can't God have morally sufficient reasons for decreeing something? Right, right. Uh, well, and, I, and I'll give you – yeah, and I'll give you Leighton's argument for that, because Leighton will always argue that he would rather err on the side of God's character being that of love, and he does not consider open theism aberrant than to go with a deterministic God um, that would compromise his holiness. 
I don't know how you guys respond to that, that but that's how Layton's going to answer that objection. I, I just go back and say it, it's the it's the same amount of love whether he passively sits by and allows the abuse of the child to happen than if then at, at least the same amount of love at least yes as, <laughs> at, as if he as if he decrees it for a morally sufficient good purpose that's right okay in, well, in, in other words it may indeed be more loving to ordain it than to just sit back and passively let it happen correct. right but yeah I, I hear where you're going sean you want me to continue on to my third example right yeah go ahead okay so now this one this example i'm going to offer might be the most egregious example of Leighton and others flattening out the transcendent and imminent. Um, in our view, according to Leighton, God, and, and you hear him say this all the time, and this is yep. one of those, for me, like nails on the chalkboard kind of things. Um, Leighton very frequently uses the phrase, God redeems his own determinations, yes. in our view. Because God not only foreordains the means of redeeming an entity or an event, but also whatever originally resulted in the need for this kind of redemption. Now, the reason I think that this might be the most egregious example of flattening out the transcendent and imminent into a single imminent phenomenon is because it does that with God's very being. So here's what I mean by that. God tr innately transcends creation. The, the entire duration of creation's history from its beginning onward throughout all eternity is all at once accessible to the transcendent mind of God. He transcends that entire everlasting timeline. Um, and, and, and in that respect, it's not altogether unlike the relationship between the author of a book who transcends the story that unfolds within the pages of that book. Now, of course, no one would object to an author writing a story in which protagonists later in the story experience redemption after a tragic event earlier in the story. No, nobody's going to mock that author for redeeming his own determinations. And yet that's precisely what Leighton does when he mocks the God in which we believe for redeeming his own determinations. He's flattening out the transcendent being of God and his imminent creation, reducing them to a single imminent phenomenon. And when you reduce the very being of God from transcendent to imminent, that becomes for me the most egregious example of this kind of flattening out. Yeah. Well, let me address that, because that's one of the things I really wanted us to talk about, because that is a refrain that Leighton uses a lot. Um, and it's very simple if you believe that everything that happens in time and space is part of God's decree. That's the easy answer. Mm. So to me, God is not redeeming his own determinations. Whatever happens in time and space is actually his determination. He's not going back and redeeming or making something good out of something that was bad. Everything that happens is part of the divine decree. Yeah. And so you've got means and you've got everything that happens in time and space is actually part of the divine decree. So it's not like God has a divine decree of something that he wanted to happen. It didn't happen. And so he has to come in after the fact and make it better and redeem what he determined so that it all turns out good. No, God has an infallible defined decree that he established before creation, and it works itself out in time and space through everything that happens. So it's not redeeming of that decree. It's a working out of that decree in specific examples. Yeah, in fact, I think um, you, you made a really good point, which is that what Leighton is doing is um, misapplying the language of redemption, because the Bible doesn't speak about God redeeming events in time. The Bible talks about God redeeming people and creatures, right? So so there isn't even a biblical concept of God redeeming his own determinations. He's redeeming people, even though their fall, you know, was right. originally part of, very, of God's very plan. 
Yeah, well, and, and what do you mean by redemption? Because like in the Bible, I'm thinking of Ephesians 5, where it says redeem the time. That's a command for us to, to, to make the most of our, of our time, especially when it comes to witnessing and being filled with the Spirit. But this whole language of even God redeeming a determination is not even biblical language. That's uh, my only, point, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the only language that the Bible uses for redemption is the cross in redeeming a people. So I understand what he means. He means God's kind of coming in after the fact and working out what he wanted to have happen in the first place to make him look better. And he often uses that example of um, the Incredibles with the, um, the, the, the guy that creates the, you know, the menace— or the monster that so he could come in and save the day. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. So uh, he syndrome, kinda, right? Yeah, syndrome or whatever. He uses that as an example. Um, so, you know, I, I think that if, if, if we just understand that God has a divine decree, and that divine decree is being worked out in time and space, and so that everything that happens is part of the divine decree, it makes it pretty simple on our view. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, and this is this is a, an issue that I don't I don't think it's a particular problem to um, to Layton or to provisionists. I think that this is a, a foundational problem for anyone who holds to a libertarian view, while also trying to hold to an orthodox view of um, uh, of the eternality of God and the the creative work of God, because you could always ask you could always ask couldn't couldn't God have made a world that was different. Right. The, the, the instant that we that we say God could have made a world where the fall didn't happen. Right. Mm. The the instant that we say God God could have made a world that was different than ours, but he but he actualized this one. <laughs> well, God God decided to create this world. No matter what you think about predestination, no matter what you think Always. about reformed theology, whatever it is, God decided to create this world in yeah. which the fall would take place and that he would then go and redeem his own people. Whatever else you think about it, right. God, God has set up this redemptive narrative. So if if Leighton wants to use that language and wants to use that that Incredibles analogy, no matter how, no matter what your view is, God has made the conditions whereby redemption is needed. He's actualized that world and not another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't think that that is even, I, I think that's a problem that that now he has to answer on his own view. Um, and we're not really, in our outline, we're not really actually going into <laughs> examining well, um, provisionism itself. But I would think that this would be a big problem for provisionism then. Um, actually, it might be even even a bigger problem of, well, is God then bound um, by by the future decisions of man outside of himself, and what does that do to a satiety and simplicity and all of those other issues? Well, yeah, I mean, their view basically has God contingent. Yeah, Chris, mm. I want you to I want you to address something. Genesis fifty twenty, you addressed in your debate as far, and you did a good exegetical um, treat, Such treatment. Such a good of, job. Such of, a good the, job. Thank the you, Hebrew. guys. It means a lot. And I listened to Layton's response to you, and he said he agreed with you. He agreed with your exegesis. Just your your conclusion was wrong. I don't know if you went back and listened to Layton's um, critique of your conversation, but um, maybe just unpack that again on this podcast so that we can hear a really good analysis of Genesis 50-20 as far as an example of how God's divine determinism works with human responsibility. 
Sure. And and just to be clear, this is something I talked about when I was interviewed on another podcast about my encounter with Leighton. Um, Leighton, I, I went into this debate with Leighton wanting to affirm uh, that everything that takes place in time is God's decree. I didn't go in arguing for any particular means by which he accomplishes that. And yet, it seemed as if Leighton's entire rebuttal throughout the whole debate assumed that what I was arguing for was a particular means of determinism. Um, and that and that was something that really frustrated me. But anyway, to, to unpack this this verse in Genesis 50-20, um, my goal is, I, I'm currently close to wrapping up a master's uh, in theology, at which point I want to go do a PhD in the Old Testament. And so I spend a lot of time in my classwork in the Hebrew Old Testament. And... Um, you know, I'm by no means uh, uh, fluent in, in biblical Hebrew yet, but I do I do understand some of it. And what's interesting in this case is that uh, Joseph, in so uh, let me back up a second. What Joseph is here doing is he's talking to his brothers after he has revealed to them that he uh, that he is their brother whom years earlier they had sold into slavery uh, and then lied to the, their father about him. And when he when he reveals his identity to them, <clears throat> they break down in tears and they're beating themselves up and and they're and they feel terrible for what they've done. And in the English, uh, Joseph says, "As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today." Now, um, you'll very often hear. Uh, non-Calvinists say that um, what this means is that uh, God sort of took what was intended, the, the, the act that the that Joseph's brothers did, and sort of like a judo master turns it around and works good out of it. He but redeemed it. He God redeemed, redeemed it. it. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> but what the text actually says, what Joseph actually says, is you uh, meant, and 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 actually the, the Hebrew word here, when it's used with the um, Hebrew word translated evil or calamity or disaster, it actually, the, the verb means something more like planned or, or, or um, uh, pre foreordained, right? You, you planned um, calamity against, devised, yes, I love that, evil against me. And then... Um, he says God, and then he uses the exact same verb, meant, and the verb has a pronominal suffix. It's, it's a suffix at the end of the verb, which refers back to the object of the verb earlier. So when Joseph says, you meant evil against me, meant is the verb, and evil is the direct object. And then he says, God meant it, that is the very evil that they meant, uh, for good. So to the very extent that Joseph's brothers devised calamity, evil, disaster, whatever, against Joseph, God, every bit as much, devised, planned, foreordained, whatever, the, the, that very same evil intent and action against uh, against Joseph. What di what differs is what their is their purpose in what they intended. They their the evil they intended that for Joseph were was out of evil motivations. The calamity or disaster that uh, that same calamity or disaster that God devised for Joseph was uh, was was with good purposes in mind. And um, yeah, so is that kind of what you were hoping yeah, to unpack? Yeah, and I'm trying to speak on behalf of Leighton because I know where his, his answers are going to be. Basically, what he would respond or a provisionist would respond is that Genesis 50-20 and Acts 2 and Acts 4, just because those are in the Bible, don't prove that God does this in all situations. 
Those are specific examples in redemptive history where God did it at that time, but that doesn't right. prove that God does it all times. Now, how now would you I respond to that? Well, to, in two two ways. First of all, um, it, it, the the, cal, the the my argument in my book included this passage, but was not ex, did not rely exclusively on it. So, in my book, in in my opening case in favor of meticulous providence, I cite uh, a, a couple of places in the Old Testament where the unfolding of history implies God meticulous providence. And then I turn to passages like this in Acts 2 and a few others in which God's um, foreordination appears to be explicit. And then I go to, to, to a bunch of passages which seem to imply that God is doing this all the time. Right. Um, so that's my so that's my first thing. Um, yes, you're right. The mere presence of this verse does not prove that he does it all the time, but it, but it is part of a larger pattern and, and explicit statements that do seem to indicate that he does it all the time. But secondly, and this might arguably be a more important response to that uh, rebuttal, is that um, the, the, the objection on the part of people like Leighton to our view very often, very often, if not almost all the time, is, is uh, based on the idea that God would not foreordain human evil. But if the, but if but if uh, Leighton and he if Leighton is willing and he is willing he did it in that recording and he did it with me in conversation afterwards, if he's willing to admit that God does in fact foreordain human evil sometimes like he did here mm -hmm. like he did in the cross and so forth, then then you cannot argue against meticulous providence on the grounds that God would not foreordain evil because you've just admitted that he does right. So those are the those are the two ways in which I'd respond yeah, to that. That's good. Yeah, very good. I was just gonna. I, all I was gonna add was that if 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 he's making a principled argument that in principle God God would be the quote unquote author of sin again, whatever that means. If if he ever if he ever worked in that way over evil, if you can show one instance of it, yeah. it would show that that principle is not accurate. Right. You, you you can't then make the principled objection to it. He right. might make the metaphysical objection that that does, that doesn't guarantee that it always happens, but it means that his principled objection can't can't be true. Right. 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 Yeah. If it shows up once and God did it, and you equivocate that He did it, then you know you're you're there basically saying God did it. Yeah. And so, well, very good. Well, Chris, is there anything else you want to share in your portion of um, some issues before we move on? Uh, no, uh, let me just uh, reiterate that what, what I've tried to offer are examples which seem to me uh, to be examples in which Leighton and others flatten out this, this relationship between the transcendent and the imminent into a single imminent phenomenon. And, 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 I, and the reason why I want to reiterate that is because, like I said, we're so often uh, uh, complained against because we throw out this language of uh, this objection that they're flattening things out, and, and it's as if they think we're just uh, uh, offering empty rhetoric. But what I've tried to demonstrate mm -hmm. is that no, this 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 objection ha has is it has specifics to it. It it has teeth, and it's a very specific objection. And I'd be interested in what uh, Leighton and others would have to say. Again, just that they seem to be flattening out the imminent and the transcendent into a single imminent reality. That's that's a good way to put it. And I know I know Dr. James White uses that flattening out term, and I know they've called him out on that. And I think we all know on the reform side what we mean by that, um, but I think that's a good explanation between the imminent and the transcendent. So that, mm. that's, that, that's a good clarification. Thanks. All right. Well, let me shift gears here and address – I'm going to go next and kind of address um, some of the issues that I see in the theology. And that's really – one of the linchpins, I think, of the provisionist issue is their denial of moral and spiritual inability. Uh, they affirm total depravity to some extent. But they deny total inability, and they usually deny 
imputed guilt from Adam's fall to all sinners. And so um, they really wrestle hard against the, what they would call the proof texts that we have that clearly teach uh, moral and spiritual inability. And so what I want to do is I just want to address one because I think it's one of the clearest ones, and that's Romans chapter 8, 6 through 8. And let me just read that. Um, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hmm. And we know what our Reformed answers are based upon the exegesis of that passage. But let me just give you what the provisionists like Leighton Flowers and others will say to the way we understand that passage. They'll say something like, mankind's inability to submit to God's law does not prove their inability to trust in Christ to fulfill that law for mankind. Hmm. Which sounds good, but there's a question that needs to be asked. And that is, do the provisionist, i.e. traditional Southern Baptists, make a clear distinction between law and gospel? Uh, In other words, is trusting in Christ law, Hmm. or is that gospel? Is the command to repent and believe and place your trust in Christ, is that in the imperative in the Greek text that we're commanded to do, and thus an obligation? Or is that something that's an indicative that we just have the ability to do because it's a statement of fact related to to the indicative? Um, And so mankind's inability to please God doesn't mean that man can't respond to God's appeal. And so there's this whole issue that God gives an appeal, The appeal in and of itself is sufficient to bring a person to the point where they can choose, and then they have the free will in their flesh to choose to respond positively to that appeal. Um, And so what I really think is that they don't really understand that passage of Scripture in in the way that we would understand it, because... I've heard Leighton Flowers basically say that Paul there is issuing an imperative. Um, he's issuing a warning to tell people that if they remain in the flesh, uh, you're not going to be able to repent of your fleshly ways, so just just heed the warning. Now, the hmm. question in that passage of Scripture is, is there anywhere exegetically with the verbs that Paul is issuing a warning Or is Paul stating in all indicatives, and I know we're getting into some Greek uh, moods here, are are they indicatives or or imperatives? And just for the listeners, an indicative is usually a statement of reality, a statement of fact. The way I put it is what what God alone has done for us in our salvation that we could never do ourselves. It's usually a statement of reality, a statement of a condition, whereas an imperative would be a warning. An imperative would be something we're commanded to do. In that Romans 8, 6 through 9 passage of Scripture, all of those verbs are in the indicative. And so what Paul is doing is Paul's giving not a warning, but he's giving a universal condition of all people. If Paul were to issue a warning to us or to people in the flesh, I mean, he would at least maybe use the subjunctive or the imperative. Um, And I think what they assume is that once a person is quote-unquote warned about remaining in the flesh, 
they can choose to get out of being in the flesh by heeding the warning. Mm. So the question then does, okay, how do you go from flesh to spirit? Um, their answer would probably be, well, all you need to do is heed the warning, accept the appeal, repent of your fleshly ways. And when you repent of your fleshly ways, when you heed the warning, then you move from the spirit to the flesh. Um, you're somehow supernaturally transferred out of the flesh into the spirit. And so I don't think they clearly understand being in the flesh means totally dominated by indwelling sin as a condition. It's something that you can't get out of. You cannot submit to God's law. You cannot do it. It's not just something, hey, I heed the warning. I don't want to remain in the flesh. I heed the warning. I can get myself out of the flesh by heeding the warning. I think Paul bends over backwards in that passage of Scripture with those indicatives and basically saying, you know, you cannot submit to God's law. Indeed, um, you know, you cannot please God. And so we would say that pleasing God, submitting to God's laws, those are commands that we're required to do. But in the flesh, we cannot do those. So something supernatural has to happen to us to get us out of the flesh into the spirit. And our answer would be God sovereignly does that to the elect. And so I just want to hear what you guys' idea or thought process is on that passage and what their view is on, on inability. Do you have somebody in mind to go first? <laughs> I don't care. You guys go for it. Chris, jump, jump in. Okay. Well, so first of all, um, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I want to I want to clarify something. When I use the word the word cannot, I'm using the word cannot in the way I might say, I can't believe you would do that, right? It's not it's not speaking to literal capacity. It's saying that my that conditions are such that they're simply it's infeasible that I would do it. Uh, something along those lines. And Paul gives us the very reason in this text why it, somebody. Uh, would not, under any circumstances, um, uh, submit to God and please God. And it's because being in the flesh, they're hostile to God. Right. So, so, the, so the question, the, the problem with the, the um, rebuttal that you've represented uh, for Leighton and other provisionists and so forth, the problem is that y y even if even if you were wrong that th that this was uh, that this is a series of in indicatives, and if it were in fact something about an imperative, the fact remains that the thing that we are being told we ought to do. Um, is something none of us, uh, given uh, uh, left to our own devices, would do right. because we are, in our very nature, hostile to God. Uh, nobody who's hostile to God is going to say, "Well, gosh, I don't want to remain in the flesh, so I better, you know, turn to the Spirit." Um, and, and also, I'll just add that, it, I, and I don't understand this. It, it seems very clear to me that somebody who does repent uh, and, and turn to the Spirit, that act would be an act that pleases God. So how can somebody who's in the flesh uh, please God by doing that, by responding to that imperative, if that very act would please God? So it seems to me that their problem, not only their objection, not only runs up to the, the problem of the distinction between indicative and imperative, as you've highlighted, but I think it also fails to account for this language of hostility to God and and, and the inability right. to please God. Right. Yeah. yeah. They deny. They deny ought, and basically what they believe is ought implies can. If we're, mm. if we're supposed to do it, if we're commanded to do it, it implies we have the capacity to do it. But yet you've articulated very well, we can't because we're hostile to God in the flesh. And, and, and let me just reiterate, it's really important, at least from my perspective, maybe not as much so from your guys's, and that's okay, that when I say we can't, and I think when Paul says we can't, he means can't in that sense of my whole will is predisposes me to not do it. 
It's not that we lack the capacity, like the metaphysical capacity to do it, at least not in my view. It's that everything within us screams against doing that because we're hostile to God. And so it really, it, 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 it's, it's so certain that we will not, that it's as if we cannot. And, um, uh, and, and, and so, yeah. And I think, by the way, that that might actually, if I'm right about that, that might actually nullify the objection that how could God command something we can't do? Because on my view, we, we have the capacity. We're just utterly opposed to it and would not do it left to our own devices. And he could, he could command that. I mean, he could command somebody to do something that we won't do in that regard. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop. I'll, I'll let you guys talk. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if this helps clarify, actually. Chris and and maybe you know maybe we'll disagree without this and we can we can not disagree here and move on. But uh, <laughs> I, I normally say we have the facility but not the capacity. Mm. So it you know it it doesn't mean the the fact that the fact that the unbeliever mm. is is dead in their sin they are dead to God and they they have they are they are hostile to God they are they are haters of God. It doesn't mean that they don't have this thing called the will. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't have the facility of the will. I mean, the total depravity is not, you know, it, it's not that sin takes away our our facilities. It doesn't, you know, the, the fact that total depravity affects my mind doesn't mean that I don't have the facility of thought. Mm. Um, it means that it's 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 poisoned, it's dead, it's 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 ruined. Um, but 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 I can still think. <laughs> mm. I just can't I just can't think to the honor and glory of God in my natural state. Um, so I, I don't know if that if if that, those are terms that are that are maybe better suited or if you have a, a Piccadilly about about not using those ones. But if I could add my two cents on that, but and 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 this sort of preempts the the section that that I would get into is in, into mine is that I think I think Sean, you make a, a fantastic point mm. from Romans eight, um, and there are other passages that bolster this even more didactically, and I think of First Corinthians two, right. And 1 Corinthians 2 is set in the context where, where Paul is clearly talking about the gospel. He's talking about the thing that is a stumbling stone for the Jews and is folly to the Gentiles. It, it is the wisdom of God that is that is absolute foolishness um, that is revealed by the Spirit. Um, and, and he says that for, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, that, that is the things that are that are of God. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words." But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, mm. and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And he makes this, he's making this point. He's, he's talking expressly about the gospel that is the wisdom of God, that is the mind of God, that is taught to us by the Spirit, that is foolishness to the Gentile and, and, and assembling back to the Jews. And he says, the natural man. The man who does not have the spirit of God cannot accept these things. Mm. That's a control. That that's a metaphysical control. It's saying the person that that is not in the spirit of God, that is not born again, cannot accept these things. Categorically, it is not possible. To Chris's point, it doesn't mean they don't have the facility to accept things. But they cannot, in their natural state, accept the things of the spirit right. because they are not of the spirit. 
Right. And this goes back to their issue with the bare gospel as information. And basically the way I put it is, you know, when you're witnessing to somebody who's lost or unsaved and you give them the facts of the gospel and you go through a gospel presentation, they can track with you the information. They can nod and assent and understand sin. They can understand the cross. They can understand what you're telling them. But until the Holy Spirit does a work in their heart to open their eyes to that truth and effectually call them and regenerate them, they don't actually receive that as the truth of the gospel where they would actually repent and believe. And so Mm -hmm. what I would say their view is, is oftentimes they talk about, and and I've talked with Leighton over the years about this, they often talk about how we believe in an extra mystical type of um, supernatural work in addition to the gospel, that the gospel is the, the grace, that, that all that's needed for a person to believe is they just need to hear the gospel. And once they hear the gospel, that alone is sufficient. And God has sent his messengers as God has sent his, sent his Holy Spirit-inspired apostles. God has, has sent his word. And once the word is preached, the gospel is the power. And so thereby, that's sufficient to bring a person to the point where they can respond to the appeal to be saved. But my question always goes to, okay, then if that's sufficient, then why do some receive it and some don't? Mm. Is there something wrong with the message? Is there something wrong with the sufficiency of the gospel? Or is there something inherently wrong in the person? And they would have to go back to the answer for their view would be, well, libertarian free will. They received the information and they chose to reject it. But still, there's got to be something categorically in that person that makes them constitutionally or morally or spiritually not able to receive the gospel if the gospel is sufficient. Because I look at the word sufficient. If the gospel is sufficient to enable a response, it's sufficient to enable a response. Right. Why aren't why don't people respond if it's sufficient? Our view is, well, you know, they're they're not elect and the Holy Spirit didn't do a work of regeneration. Their answer is libertarian free will. I'd, I'd like to hear you guys' views on that. Yeah, I, I think Go ahead. I think uh, my my uh, my main two thoughts on this are that the first thing is I don't know what it means to say that the gospel qua the gospel the words themselves um, are something that enables the will of man um, that that almost sounds like magic to me like the, <laughs> like the like the words themselves are some powerful kind of incantation apart from the working of the spirit. Um, I, I don't know what that means. Um, I know what it means to say that the, that the words of the gospel are the means by which the spirit works, yes. um, that they are the power of God, um, that, that, you know, I, I understand what that means. I, it just sounds like a magic incantation to me. And I, I'm not trying to be uncharitable or anything. I, I literally don't understand the concept of if I just speak the words into existence, the words themselves, not by the operation of the spirit, just the words have the power to do something to enable and enliven the will of man. Um, I, I can't follow that. The other thing is that that we're told <laughs> that the word of God that proceeds from the mouth of God will not come back void. Right. Mm. And what this means is if the word of God, if the gospel itself is the power and it comes back and, and the intention, if God desires all to be saved and he wants all to be saved and, and the gospel goes to every single person and it doesn't work, 
then it comes back void more times than not. Mm. Um, and and, and that to me seems a problem. It's not sufficient. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. Although I will say to play the devil's advocate a little bit, I think they could say, well, it's not an incantation. It's it's the very thing that you said. The difference is the spirit doesn't uh, regenerate the person um, through the gospel. The spirit is what enlivens them through the gospel. Um, so I'm not 100% sure that that – so you can unpack that in a moment if, if you want to push back on that a little bit um, because, I, frankly, like I said, I'm just playing the devil's advocate there. Yeah. But one thing but, – but I wanted to um, – uh, yeah, I, I agree with everything else, and and you know, I, I just recently wrapped up a class on uh, on this on First Thessalonians, and um, the class was taught by a Presbyterian who um, made the point her 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 very dissertation, her doctoral dissertation on this book, First Thessalonians, is the is the notion that repeat the, a recurring theme throughout it and second Thessalonians is the difference between divine agency and human agency. And, and Paul has this, this idea that the gospel itself is, um, an expression of divine agency. It's not human agency uh, that's active. The human agency is passive. What's active in agency is uh, is God himself. And what's interesting is right there at the very beginning of 1 Thessalonians in verse 4, Paul says, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do we know he's chosen you? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit yeah. and with full conviction. Yeah. So the very, the very, um, their very reception of the gospel is what proved that God had previously already chosen them. Um, so, I, I, yeah, it, it just seems to me so obvious that the the just attack on everything that you just said. The reason we can say that God's that the gospel never turns up void is because the gospel is aimed at the elect. Right? right to to to, to use an imperfect turn of phrase it's it's right. meant to regenerate and save and uh the elect and the elect alone it is sufficient uh for its intended purposes right. and yeah. and that seems pretty clear to me yeah. well it's very interesting because i listened to Leighton flowers um interview with roger olson who is a mm. classical armenian and they actually disagreed on this issue yeah which is a huge issue for Leighton and for the provisionists because at least we as Calvinists and Arminians, we start at the starting point of spiritual inability, moral mm. inability. We have a different answer as to how God overcomes that, but we at least start at the starting point. Uh, and so Roger Olson seemed to struggle with Leighton's view that just the bare gospel itself was enough. I mean, Roger Olson probably, as a classic Arminian, would at least say there's a provenient grace right. that's that, that operates internally, supernaturally in a person through the Holy Spirit in addition to the bare you know, giving of the gospel um, as their answer. And so, um, you know, it's interesting that we as Calvinists and Arminians at least start from the standpoint of moral and spiritual inability and that something has to overcome that. You know, in our view, it's sovereign regeneration has to overcome that to the elect. In their view, it's provenient grace has to overcome that. But at least something has to be overcome. Um, in their view, I don't know what needs to be overcome. Yeah. Nothing needs yeah. to be overcome. It just, the will just needs to be enabled. And yeah. when, when the will is enabled through the bare gospel, then a person can respond to the appeal, um, which seems to me to be lacking in the role of the Holy Spirit fully the way we'd understand taking the word through the means of the preaching of the gospel, doing that internal work of regeneration. Right. Which which and, and they hate this. But, you know, this is the boogeyman 
I think that's the that's the difference that makes their view in line with semi-Pelagianism, where uh-huh. I don't I don't think classical Arminianism is. And I've asked right. them for I've asked them for a difference, and I've asked, and I have said, look, if if the if the bare gospel itself in, enlivens the will, right? But the but the will wasn't broken. You you could you don't need you don't actually need the gospel to enliven it. You need maybe you need the gospel to to clear the barrier from it. That that's fine. But but then but then on that, if if the will isn't if the will isn't dead, if you're not dead to God, if you're not dead, what does regeneration even accomplish? Well, what, what's what, the point of regeneration then at that point? If all you need is the alive in the will to then choose God, why can't you just have a, a, an enlivened will from there on out? Well, one of the things that, that Leighton and others will argue, and I've heard them say this, um, is that the inab- they agree with inability, but what they say inability is, is that you just haven't heard. Yes. So, so your inability is you haven't heard. So when you hear, that gives you the ability. Right, because so how can you believe think- something you've never encountered? Yeah, that you never encounter. And they go back to that Romans 10 passage of, you know, how, how will they hear without somebody telling them? And so the inability on their view is all a person needs is just to hear the right. gospel appeal. Once they hear that, then they have the ability. But before but isn't they didn't that, have the ability. But isn't that semi-Pelagianism? I mean, oh, I mean I, not, 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 I not isn't that, that everything of semi but isn't well, that true of semi-Pelagianism? Ir- ironically, because they accuse us of of you know, being semi-Gnostic and kind of a tongue-in-cheek way. Ironically, that's closer to Gnosticism, where what what enlivens you is the movement from ignorance to knowledge. Uh, I'm going to stay out of that debate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we don't have to go down there. I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't actually think they're semi-Gnostic. I'm just saying that that... that 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 is that 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 is just a movement from ignorance to knowledge. That's not actually anything that affects your will. In fairness to their view, that you know they will say we we say that you know the boogeyman of, of semi-Pelagianism or even Pelagianism. Yeah, I think the reason that 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 term is used a lot on Facebook and, and in other places is because their view is so different from historic categories of Arminianism and Calvinism that. It's almost like, well, what's the alternative here? And for most people, the alternative is to immediately go to semi-Pelagianism as the default. I don't think it is because they will admit that there is, you know, some spiritual depravity and there is some corruption and that man is incapacitated to some degree. But their view just is very confusing that all that's needed is to hear the appeal and then you that's sufficient to enable you to respond to the appeal. And one of the things I also want to bring up is they oftentimes can, can um, I think, truncate um, conversion. Basically, what I hear them say a lot is, you know, just because you're in bondage to sin doesn't mean you can admit you're in bondage to sin and reach out and receive the gift of salvation. And so basically what they've done is they've changed conversion, which I would define biblically as repentance and faith given as gifts to the elect to their definition of, well, all you're basically doing is just admitting that you need help, admitting mm-hmm. that you're in bondage, admitting that you need rescued. And once you admit that, then, ah. then, you're, then you're saved. So it's, it's the old ABC that I grew, you know, we grew up in vacation Bible school, admit, believe, confess. You know, if you just admit you're a sinner, then that's yeah. the same as conversion. And admitting admitting you're in bondage is is basically what saves you as opposed you know just because you're in bondage doesn't mean you can't admit you're in bondage and get in, and then receive the help to get out of bondage. I don't yeah, know how that, you guys view, view that 
that terminology. That's a, a really great clarification because yeah. one of the analogies that uh, that Leighton and others often give is the analogy of somebody who recognizes that they've got a an illness or a disease or whatever, and all they're doing is acknowledging their need for a cure when they go to the doctor and ask for the shot that will cure them of that, right? right. But but biblically, I think, and, and I apologize for the crass analogy, but but following in line with this sort of medical kind of sphere, um, imagine you go to a um, a gastric um, uh, you know, weight loss search, uh, 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 organization saying, I can't, I can't lose the weight on my own. So I need you to shrink the size of my stomach so I can only eat a little bit and thereby for, you know, lose the weight. Um, and now imagine that the, the bariatric surgeon or whatever says, okay, I'll tell you what, I will do that. But it's so, but, 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 it, but the only way I'm willing to do that is if you on your own can lose 20 pounds first to prove that you're going to be able to restrain your eating beforehand. <laughs> right. I know, I know it's crass, but that is, that is actually analogous in the sense that, um, we would believe continuing with the analogy that you can't, that, that repent, that, that conversion means more than merely accepting the cure. It means repenting, but most of us who really struggle with weight would say it's an extreme challenge, if not impossible, to even lose that first 20 pounds in the first place that's necessary to um, convince the doctor to do the surgery in the first place or whatever. So what what um, what I think uh, Leighton's and other people's analogy would lead to is the notion that, yeah, human beings do have the power, do have the capacity, do have the willingness to lose those first couple of you know first 20 pounds and then and then the the doctor in this case god will be you know willing to cure the rest um but that is so not biblical i mean there, there's no biblical support for something like that at all it does am i making a lick of sense yeah yeah, yeah. okay i i think a follow-up question and and if if you all want to give a you know a, a kind of a a clarifying thought of, of how you think that this this would be resolved i'm always curious that um, you know the the provisionist the the, the SBC traditionalist position um, holds to a position of eternal security. Mm. Um, right. I, I, I've honestly I've never heard an answer that I found. Well, I mean, I, I mean I haven't found their views convincing, but I haven't even heard one that I find even can kind of consistent with their view of why why the person <laughs> if, if their will isn't dead and it's not it's not a regenerated will such that we can we have faith and believe. Why can't the will later on turn away? I, I understand why they say you can't lose your salvation, but why can't they go kind of that that other you know um, Wesleyan route and say, well, you can give it up though? Yeah, I can give you an answer because Leighton and I did a podcast one time and he forgot to record it, so it never got it never got live. And I and I had asked this question to him, and basically, if I remember correctly, his because I said basically, what? How could a person you know if somebody has libertarian free will? all the way through, then why couldn't they just give up their salvation in heaven? I mean, it's kind of yeah. that same question. Um, and I think you're kind of asking it the same way. Are we more free as sinners yeah, than we yeah. are as saints? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And I think his answer was, well, that's just God just wouldn't do that. God God keeps you. That's God's prerogative to keep those. Um, and so it was just an appeal to that's what God has chosen to do, is to promise to keep those who are his. So what, he's willing to um, impede our libertarian free will or overrule it after salvation, but not before? Right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'd be interested in hearing how he responds to that after he's heard, yeah. after he's heard this. Well, and, and think, about, think about this, guys. Think about Adam for a moment. Adam had, if you could say, some type of freedom. Now, we can argue whether he had libertarian freedom based upon the, the, the confessions, but 
Adam was created upright and we are not Adam. And yet given the freedom that he had, he chose wrongly. Hmm. Now, how much more who we are fallen in Adam, why would we ever choose rightly as fallen people when Adam, who was, wasn't fallen, chose wrongly? Unless God does something in us to give us the ability to overcome that. Um, I, I don't know how they answer that either. You guys are saying what I'm, at, what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I think Adam poses a lot of interesting problems. Actually, for, I mean, for both sides, there, Adam poses interesting problems against Calvinism also. But I always wonder, you know, if 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 God is willing to, you know, they'll, they'll admit, well, God can violate libertarian freedom in some cases to bring about his his purpose. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, why couldn't God violate Adam's will in the garden and stop all of the other evil from happening? Like, surely that's a really bad evil because it entails all right. the other evil, including. Right. The maximal evil, which is the 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 crucifixion of God Himself, right, right. right? So that, I mean that, that that one act entails the sum total of all evil. That's that seems like that'd be a pretty good spot to intervene, um, if God was just kind of choosing spots to intervene. It wasn't and wasn't. Right. And, and let's things. be clear. Let's be clear. As we've already talked about, he wouldn't even need to violate Adam's um, right libertarian free will in order to prevent him from falling. Right. <laughs> you know, That's, uh, right. just don't don't put the tree there. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. All right. Well, do you guys have anything else on total? And we've talked about divine determinism. We've talked about total inability. Is there anything else you guys have on that issue of of kind of that that issue of total inability? Before we move on to Tyler, I'm good. I'm good. All right, Tyler, you get to bring us around to the end and bring up your your major issue. Sure, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna transition out of what we're what we're what we're talking about now, and set myself up for a hard problem to solve. Um, one of one of the things that I think comes about from the discussion we we've been having is that when we when we look at certain passages, um, the the symbols on their position seem to break down. So we we look at someone like Lazarus rising from the dead right mm. a very common calvinist trope and we say that that is a that is a good example of regeneration that that is you know uh, Lazarus was dead physically and that that's that's analogous or that's metaphorical or or whatever you know a living analogy whatever you want to say for for the raising of the dead um, in in the newness of life of Christ right and and when i look at yeah uh, uh you know, provisionism, that 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 raising of Lazarus from the dead doesn't really work as a as a life picture of soteriology anymore. Mm. Um, that, that breaks down. Now, here's the problem, because my my main objection, one of my big objections is going to be a hermeneutical problem. I often find that the the provisionist moves from the less clear passages to as a grid to interpret the more clear passages mm -hmm. that is they violate the the what's called the analogy of faith or the rule of faith um, that that you interpret the less clear by the more clear and they reverse that arrow um, mm -hmm. so often latent flowers will move backwards from you know pushing kind of a very very uh, rigid understanding a very literal understanding of the prodigal son and take that as the framework to understand um, uh, more more literal passages. He'll use that to respond to and set his interpretation of passages like Romans eight and Romans nine. 
Yeah. Now, didn't I just set myself up? Didn't I? Didn't I interpret soteriology from Lazarus? Right. Don't don't Calvinists do that also? No. <laughs> the answer is no. The reason why is because we'll take our systematic theology that's derived from Romans eight, Romans nine, Ephesians one, John six, or all these other passages, and we'll say, okay, uh, you know, la, la, the 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 story of Lazarus is a good example of this other systematic theology right. that we find elsewhere. It's a good picture of it. Mm. We don't use it as a grid. To, to then filter other more didactic passages through. Right. right. Um, and I find that so often. So 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 often Leighton will go to the to the prodigal son and say, ah, oh, see, but the but the prodigal son, he he was in the mire. He chose to come back to the father. Right? He he chose, you know, he he wasn't dead. He wasn't enabled. The 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 father didn't have to send his his you know his his manservant to come and raise the son from the dead <laughs> who had drowned in the in the mud to come back. Right? So, so therefore, that's not accurate soteriology, right? right? And what and what it's doing is it's pushing a parable to stand on all four literal legs, and then to try to understand more didactic passages. Whereas we would say, okay, there's a general, you know, there's there's a systematic soteriology that we can find, and these parables, you know, point to one principle within that. And and really, right. I think. A lot of times we focus on the, you know, most of us as preach on, we focus on the the prodigal son, but really the point of the parable is to highlight the 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 self righteousness of the Pharisees of the older son. <laughs> That's actually the point of the parable. Um, but but we we don't come to these parables, we don't come to these stories, we don't come to Lazarus and the rich man, we don't come to the raising of Lazarus and make them stand on all four. We we understand the 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 rule of faith hermeneutically where we we move from the clear to the less clear. Right. And I think he does that with like the word dead. Yes. He'll go to like Sardis and Revelation and, and things like that as opposed to the clear passages in Ephesians, Colossians. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, and it also I, I my understanding of that of the parable of the prodigal son is that it's and maybe this was the same way of saying the same thing you did, Tyler, but in a slightly different way. It seems to me that it's not about any individual person's salvation. It's about the uh, it's about the um, the inclusion of Gentiles in the um, in 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 the kingdom yeah. of God. And and so not only is he uh, trying to make a parable stand on all fours and be the seat upon which he builds all the rest of his satirical theology but but he's also he, he's 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 applying the parable in a way that it's not even intended to be applied Correct. so a better a better uh, or a closer more analogous um parable might be you guys can tell me what you think of this uh the parable of the 99 or of the hundredth sheep right that one is indeed about christ being unwilling to um let one of his sheep uh perish Right. It, 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 it seemed that doesn't seem to be about. Seem, I mean, it, even then, it still might be about Jews and Gentiles, because he does later say there are other sheep I have that aren't part of this flock. But the point is, that's that it seems to me that there is a greater opportunity to use that parable to to support a soteriology. But there, what's interesting is um, people are Christ's sheep before they hear his voice. He says right. it's, the very, it's because right. we're his sheep that we hear his voice. And he explicitly right. says to the Pharisees, you're not my sheep. So right. anyway, that's, I'm, I'm rambling. Well, but yeah, I, I, go ahead. And, and I'll, I'll borrow from Michael Horton here, who often says, you know, don't build your theology from parables. Hmm. I think, I think one of the things that Leighton and others do is they will want to build a theology of election from his parable of the wedding banquet, yep. uh, a theology of deadness from the prodigal son, um, whereas 
especially like when you look at the synoptic gospels where there's those parables, a lot of those are parables of the kingdom, which I think, Chris, you're right, talking about Jew and Gentile inclusion and things like that. You get to the Gospel of John, where it's more some of its teachings more didactic in nature. Um, but you know, one of the things that I think that that Leighton often does is he'll import things that aren't related to the passage he's dealing with to support his outcome. So, like for example, in Romans chapter nine, he'll often bring in Paul's argument from Galatians about Hagar and Sarah into Romans 9 to prove what he thinks Romans 9 is saying. And I think Galatians and Romans, two different audiences and two different things. Um, oftentimes, you know, he'll bring in Matthew chapter 20 or whatever, or what I can't remember if it's 20 or 21 or whatever, talking about the, the parable of the wedding banquet. And so, you know, oftentimes, instead of just going through the passage, you know, step by step and looking at it exegetically, I think he knows what the outcome he wants, and he'll go back and find a parable or some other thing to import to support his outcome as opposed to dealing with the actual exegetical text. And that may yeah. be an unfair statement, and, and, and Leighton may not like that I say that, and he may push back pretty hard on that. And I, and I welcome that, Leighton, and hopefully you hear that with love and compassion, but I think that is part of the hermeneutical method that I see oftentimes. Yeah. And I think we saw this in Chris in your in your dialogue with him in, in Unbelievable, where he he starts out and he says, you know, look, I, I'm not a philosopher, so let's go with the text. But then when you present the exegesis for the text, he then goes to these philosophical analogy, you know, the thought experiment of the police raid and things like mm. that. But then when that shows not fail, then he'll want to jump back to the text and but as if, as if the thought experiment wasn't defeated. Mm. And he'll kind of help himself coming and going to these different things, but he won't press them both at the same time for consistency. And when, when we press them on it, it's like the it's like the bump that in the rug that goes down one place and we'll say, okay, well, that thought <laughs> experiment, it doesn't work for this. Okay, but, but then let's look at this passage. And you go to that passage and you start exegeting. Okay, but that doesn't work because of, and then back to the thought experiment. And it's 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 kind of a it's it's almost kind of a what's the, what's that what's that game the the hide the rabbit or whatever it is it, it's 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 helping himself to the conclusions and and, and again I don't mean that I, I don't think he's doing it intentionally I don't think he's being dishonest or anything like that um, but but it's but it's kind of helping himself to positions that he thinks are true in different in different areas of 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 thought you know philosophical theological and biblical. And as one gets pressed down, just jumping to the other one and just kind of jumping around the ring back and forth, never really realizing, okay, well, that one's been stomped down. You don't get to come back to it. Hmm. Yeah. So what do you guys think of a lot of the analogies he uses that, that he tries to use to kind of prove his point? Often are like human to human analogies as opposed yeah. to transcendent God to to rebel sinner analogies. I mean, he often uses those, and then the police sting is the big one, um, and other things like that. Uh, Tyler, were you going to address something like that? I can't remember if that was one of the things you were going to talk it, about. It wasn't, but but you and I have talked about it before. Yeah. Um, um, and and one of one of my biggest issues, like with the police sting, you're absolutely right. It's it's a human to human responsibility. So a, as humans. Um, we have certain moral obligations to each other that God doesn't have. Um, the analogy, I think, just it, the, it, it breaks down because it, it confuses the creator-creature distinction. Right. God is not a respecter of persons. It's why we have certain sayings like, who are you to play God? Because I can't go and take somebody's life, 
but God at any moment could take that person's life. Um, you know, the, the police might have a certain responsibility to not entrap the criminal, but why does it follow that God has that responsibility to not entrap the criminal? Um, now, we might want to say in righteousness, God wouldn't. But again, you can't make the principled argument from that analogy that because we can't right. do something, therefore God can't do it either. Um, we, we see throughout the scripture that God is not a respecter of persons in the sense of his obligation. He loves humanity. I don't mean it and he doesn't respect people, but he's not a respecter of persons. He, he gives and takes life. Um, he, 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 he causes and ends calamity. Um, God has those prerogatives that we do not have as the creator. And I think that those analogies fail for those reasons, like you pointed out. Have you guys ever heard Leighton, and I don't know if I have, that's why I'm asking you guys, but I do want to comment on an analogy I do often hear um, non-Calvinists use, and I don't know if Leighton's ever used something like it, where they compare the Calvinist God to a uh, God who shows favoritism to two of his kids and then hates, you know, and then it ignores his other kids. Has, has he said any, you offered an analogy, anything along those lines? I don't know. I can't recall, to be I honest with you. I don't know. But, but, go, but go ahead and address that. Yeah, sure. So the reason I bring it up is because this is a, a common problem, this, this problem of using inaccurate, disanalogous analogies. Uh, it is a problem that is not unique to Leighton. It, 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 it spans all the, the argumentation of, or at least much of the argumentation that I've seen from critics of Calvinism. And and so as an example, just recently I was, um, I was on a, a friend of mine's podcast and I was trying to um, uh, rebut arguments that were offered in favor of universalism. And he said, you know, and, and the topic of Calvinism came up and he said, you know, it just seems like in your view, uh, God is showing love to some of his children and he's not showing love to his other children. That just seems like it's it's really terrible favorites uh, or it's, it's a terrible expression of uh, showing favorites. And th it, the thing is, is that that very analogy is very often used by critics of Calvinism, whether they're universalist or not. And yet we have over and over again, all throughout the centuries, have pointed out that in scripture human beings aren't relationally God's children by default right. you know the, the biblical the biblical um, way in which we are like children to God by default is is merely in our being his creatures right um, the relational aspect of father son is something that only applies to people who are adopted into the family of God through faith and so a better analogy would be um, uh, you know, there are 10 um, death row criminals guilty of a series of murders all on death row awaiting awaiting um, uh, execution, and the governor pardons a fraction of those 10 death row criminals. Um, that doesn't have nearly the same emotive force that the analogy of God choosing to love some of his children and not others does, and yet it seems like uh, the, the the broader non-Calvinist community repeatedly brings up the, these disanalogous analogies like this one as if we had never before rebutted it when in fact we've rebutted it on countless occasions. Yeah, you could also think of the you know the Valley of the Dry Bones in Ezekiel. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. so imagine that in the Valley of the Dry Bones, only half the bones came back to life. Mm -hmm. would, would anyone say, oh well, <laughs> that's not fair? Yeah, you you didn't love all the dry bones. Well, no, it was God. It was God's gracious prerogative to raise any of them. Mm. Uh, well, he, he, has I, no under, he was no under no obligation to raise all any of them at all. Yeah, let me quote Calvin here at the beginning of his Institutes. Didn't Calvin say, 
and I'm paraphrasing, the greatest wisdom that we can gain is an understanding of God and understanding of ourselves. And I think basically what we're dealing with is a fundamental difference in who God is and a fundamental difference in who humans are. Mm. And so it comes down to anthropology and the nature of God and how we really view these issues. And, I, and, and so that to me makes it very, very important because like when your analogy, it's starting with the definition of humans where we're assuming that we're all God's children, we're all neutral, we're not hostile enemies to God, and that we all deserve to be loved. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not where the Bible starts. I mean, yeah, the right. Bible starts with us being fallen in Adam, hostile, enslaved to sin, um, you know, not not God seekers, you know, ha- hating God. Like, and, and I know Leighton's going to take issue with, you know, we're, we're God haters from birth, but I don't know how you can get, you know, the scriptures that teach that. Right. You know, how, I mean, it's pretty clear. Well, and I think you you can push this point. So the so you know, I think of the the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. Mm. Um, if the the avenging angel went through and 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 killed the firstborn it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't you know the the Jews going through and you know you're justifying then holy war and things like that it it was the it was the avenging angel of god that god sent to go through and and, and kill the firstborn and he provided a means for his people and he didn't provide a means for the, exactly. for the egyptians if the if the children it seems to me that if the children were not inheritors of Adam's sin, if they were not, if they were not um, naturally already uh, guilty and dead to God, wouldn't that, on on the the provisionist view, wouldn't that be an extreme moral evil? God, God wasn't just allowing infants to die in infancy, for example. And he was killing God was them. actually proactively himself going through and killing children who were innocent before him. Right. That well, seems to be a big problem for me if, well, if his view is true. Well, let me let me see. Let me play devil's advocate and see how they may respond to that. Yeah. They may say that, well, because Pharaoh hardened his own heart and Pharaoh was the federal head of those people, then they were hardened because Pharaoh hardened himself. It was a just punishment that was inflicted upon Pharaoh for his own self hardening. Um, but that can only be said for Pharaoh, not for the innocent children. Yeah. And notice that that relies on the very concept of federal headship and <laughs> guilt and guilt under which they're trying to deny. That's right. right. As the foundation for total depravity in, in order right. to get around the objection, they need to assume the very principle of, of, of guilt under federal headship. That is the foundation for total depravity. Right. Yeah. Uh, what I'd like to do, if you guys don't mind, since we're approaching the the end of our discussion, is I'd like to sure. to I'd like to pick up on Sean what you said a moment ago, and um, uh, and I think this is important. Turn the crosshairs back on us, yeah. because we Calvinists are uh, right when we say the what what um, the, the the reason why uh, or one of the reasons to be a Calvinist is because it recognizes that. I am no better than the person next to me who doesn't respond to the gospel when I do, when I hear it. I'm no better than him. God's choice of me has nothing to do with anything I was. he knew I would do, nothing nothing in me, no quality of myself that deserves his choice of me. So by his choice, of his choosing of me is 100% by grace. It has nothing to do with anything in myself. Um, and so... Uh, whereas in in the libertarian view, at the very least, the person who accepts the gospel is exhibiting some humility or wisdom or or whatever that the person who does not accept the gospel doesn't. So we are saying 
we Calvinists um, recognize uh, that we are utterly deserving of or utterly undeserving of the grace and that we're utterly in need of it to a, to a greater extent than than even the libertarians would say but here's the thing what that should do is it should prompt us calvinists we calvinists to be the most gracious in our dialogue on this topic with our uh, interlocutors with our, with our critics mm-hmm. and unfortunately i think it's the case that at least as often as our critics are guilty of being less than gracious we are guilty of being less than gracious and so you know all three of us i think have tried really hard uh, and i hope we've succeeded and i think we have at, at trying to be gracious here in our critique of, of leighton but i want to encourage our fellow calvinists mm-hmm. um that may not as uh, may sometimes maybe more often than they'd like to admit fall into the trap of not showing the very kind of grace that we say is so central to our soteriology do you guys know what i mean yeah 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 i mean well, i started i started by saying you know mea culpa mea culpa i've already apologized to Leighton for some ways that i was ungracious towards him yeah uh, and, and hopefully i haven't exhibited any of that here i've tried very hard um <clears throat> but and, and to piggyback on your point i i think that you know, we we all fall into moments of 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 being ungracious and uncharitable. Um, you know, we get we get heated in discussions. We can't understand why they just don't understand. <laughs> um, but you know, even if they don't agree with us, why don't why aren't you just even getting what my point is? Um, but one and to and to piggyback on this, one of the things that that I find interesting is is when is when there are there are Calvinists because I don't think this is a hollow objection or criticism by non-Calvinists. There are Calvinists who say these types of things, um, which are that, you know, Calvinists are um, the, the only ones who, who are, who are saved that, that Calvinism is, mm. is the gospel and, and so on and so forth. And it, it almost comes across as if the, the unconditional election is conditioned upon uh, our, our, our theology being elect. Yeah. Um, and, right. and there's, there's a very rare sense where if, if we believe our theology of unconditional election, there can literally be nothing about us yeah. that, that causes us to, to, to be the elect. We cannot be self-righteous in, in our election that somehow we as Calvinists are better in any way, shape or form than those that we're dialoguing. Right. And let me just say this, too, with Leighton and my brothers in the Southern Baptist Convention and others who are non-Calvinists, we have a whole lot more in common than we have differences Amen. when it comes to the fundamentals of the faith. And in our postmodern culture that's going crazy, we're going to really have to stand together on some key issues. And so these are fun topics to talk about as secondary issues, but I hope that you know as days get darker, which I think they will, especially in America, and then we'll have to stand for truth in a lot stronger ways— um, I hope that we can unite more on what we do believe and let these secondary things be good discussions, but not something that we're going to divide over. Um, we should definitely have clear, clear distinctions on what we believe and hold to our confessions and speak the truth in love. But I think yeah. the day's coming when we who are Bible-believing evangelical Christians need to stand strong against a culture and be salt and light yeah. together. Here well, and if I, if I could give any type of, of, of poignant um, you know, based on what's happening in the SBC right now, I'm not going to comment on, on what sides or anything like that. As a Presbyterian, uh, my, my ecclesiastical history is very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we had a very strong, uh, split about very similar issues. Right. Um, and it would be an absolute shame if not only were, were there splits in the SBC and what that does for the reputation of Christ. I, you know, I pray every day for the unity of the SBC, 
it looks like there's going to be some type of split in the future between the more liberal and the more conservative. It would be an absolute shame if you if you followed us Presbyterians down the same route where even the conservatives can't get along. Right. Um, <laughs> where where, you know, you, you, you have a bunch of conservative Presbyterian denominations because we couldn't get along on certain things. I would much rather I, I would love to see Soteriology 101 uh, and the and the Calvinists, you know, Reformed Baptists try to find a way to say, you know what, let's not split over this. Let's find a way that I can have a provisionist pastor and a Calvinist pastor on the same staff at the same church uh, and preach the gospel in love together. Let's let's not let's not try to split the church one more time over these things. And I'm not saying that that Layton's trying to split the church or anything like that. Uh, I, I you know I don't think that's what they're they're, they're attempting to do, um, but maybe try to find a way in your ministry to be more understanding, not see Calvinism as as such a bad dangerous thing, mm-hmm. um, and focus on that that unity that you're going for, mm-hmm. and 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 have the SBC at least the conservative side be a really strong witness for Christ of how we can be united together. Mm. Let me just say this too, and, and this is this is to Leighton and to his tribe. I and you guys know, and they know this. I've tried really hard over the past three or four years to understand their side. Um, they are not full blown Arminians. Um, they're provisionists. They're traditional Southern Baptist, and there's a lot of misunderstanding of who they are out there. And there's a lot of people that just brush them off and and put them in different categories. And I've been over backwards to read Leighton, to listen to Leighton, to try to really understand what they believe so I can address their issues and address their their conversations and kind of speak their language. And so I hope we've been fair. I hope we've accurately presented them. Um, Leighton, I know you're going to listen to this. If we've done some things that we haven't accurately presented your view, uh, please clarify so that we can understand more fully your view. Um, push back. We welcome it. And, um, you know, we, we appreciate what you're doing at Soteriology 101 and the ministry that you have. Uh, we've all interacted with you, and we want to see the body of Christ grow and be fruitful through these discussions. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, you have any last words to say before we call it quits? This has been real fun. This is the first time I think all three of us have done something like this together. So yeah, it's it's been a blast, and and you know, uh, you you can edit this out if you like, but um, <laughs> I, it, I think it'd be really cool if um, uh, Layton and say Jonathan Pritchett and Braxton Hunter did like a three versus three fun, but you know, respectful but challenging debate with the three of us. I think that would be a really interesting debate, and I think that. Um, I mean, anyway, it's neither here nor there. But but the point is, I think that um, I would love to see the dialogue continue in in one shape or form or another. And um, hopefully, to that end, we've uh, we've uh, critiqued uh, Leighton in in the kind of spirit that you've just described. And and I think we have accomplished that. So, well, I appreciate both of you guys, Chris Date and Tyler Vella, your ministries, the things that you guys do. I know we have a lot of differences in some of our views, Mm -hmm. but we can come together on this one topic and and speak in a unified voice and do it in a cordial way. And I appreciate you guys a lot. So thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah. The pleasure and honor is all mine. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you.